Hi everybody, I'm Elias Krim, and we're back at Dorothy's Place, the occasional and charmingly informal podcast from Solidarity Hall. I'm happy to be here again with my friend and co-host, the inimitable Pete Davis. Pete, how you doing? I am doing great. So glad to be here as always, Elias. Great. This is going to be fun. We're doing kind of a heady topic, but we're going to take it right down to the real world in our inimitable fashion. The subject, not to scare everybody to death, is pragmatism. And we're going to talk about this in a broad way. And it occurred to me that it would be fun to talk about because you just had a very interesting conversation on the Current Affairs podcast. But you had a conversation with Sparky Abraham on uh, pragmatism. And I thought, maybe, uh, I thought maybe you would help our listeners by giving us your sense of what is this school of philosophy and what, what do you think its, its value is? What's the thing about it today? Oh, wonderful. Well, I'm so glad to be talking about this. You know, what's great, I am uh, in love. I consider myself a capital P pragmatist. And the the joke that started the conversation with uh, Sparky that I think I can start with here is to, to say I am a pragmatic Democrat, but I am a capital P pragmatic, lowercase d Democrat, as opposed to a lowercase p pragmatic, uppercase d Democrat. Um, And I I will explain what that means in a second. (laughs) So when we say pragmatic um, in normal parlance, we mean, you know, being utterly reasonable, you know, deciding to um, often it's used to be moderate. It's often used to be a realist instead of an idealist. Um, and it it has some tenuous connections to capital P pragmatism, but mm-hmm. capital P pragmatism is so much more exciting than lowercase p pragmatism. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so capital P pragmatism is this great American philosophy um, that emerged at the, th- the turn of the century with this trio of uh, Charles Sanders Pierce, William James, and John Dewey. I would include Jane Addams and <laughs> W.E.B. Du Bois as part of the Pentagon of uh, the five that were at the turn of the century. Yeah. But usually in the academic writing, it's those first three. Um, and the big idea of pragmatism is it was this break from European philosophy, you know, and it was a break from the, you know, otherworldliness of so much of European philosophy, that there were (laughs) ideals you could figure out on a piece of paper alone in your room, that there were, uh, you know, uh, there were blueprints for how society should be organized or people should interact with each other or ways we should be in the world that you could find out alone in your room working on a piece of paper. What the pragmatist said is that you cannot... Um, have ideas independent of experience um, that, you know, they they talked about the metaphor of the two, two legs walking of ideas and experiences. And the way to think about this is you have an idea about something in the world. Then you go out and act as if you believe that idea is true. Then you get data from your action and go back to ideal land and um, and adjust your thought about the world. And then you go back to action and you get more data and then you ju- go back and forth. So a great kind of example would be this stove uh, is cold. You put your hand on it, acting on that knowledge. The stove is hot. You burn your hand. You now have this concept called the hot stove. You might have another concept you build called, um, you know, uh, uh, 
it is dangerous, you know, or this is how burning works or something <laughs> like that. And over time, there's a relationship between reality and ideas. And so this sounds like, and so there's a whole kind of theory of how children develop their knowledge. You don't just pour oh, knowledge yeah. into their heads. Yeah. The um, It's not like they have a blank slate <laughs> and then you pour knowledge into their heads. There's this pragmatic idea of constructivism where you, a child constructs his vision of the world, his or her vision of the world. Um, and then it goes all the way up to kind of how should you organize society like a democracy is um, an organization of society on pragmatic grounds because it's supposed to have action happen in the world and then respond and um, and then there's a you know there's a, a way of kind of having theories of what we should how we should organize society that are pragmatic which is democratic experimentalism we should try things out see what happens and then um, and then uh, you know adjust what we believe about them. Yeah. Um, so to be pragmatic is to say, let's infuse some reality and experiments into our thought, not just sit alone in a room <laughs> thinking up ideals. How would you, did I miss anything in that definition? You've recently read no, no, that's piece on this. Yeah, well, most of it. Yes. No, that sounds absolutely right. You know, I, I got to confess at the outset that many years ago when I was in school reading some philosophy, I did not pick up a single text of American philosophy. So, and, and pragmatism does obviously sound very American. It, you know, it's a kind of get stuff done philosophy, right? And and so the, I had a kind of snobism, which I'm confessing to, which was that, you know, American philosophy is not really philosophy, right? That there's Plato, there's Aristotle, maybe there's the medievals, Hegel, and his friends in, high, in Texas would say, hi, digger. <laughs> <laughs> What, but this is what's so funny about you thinking that that is what the Europeans thought at the time exactly. when it was coming no, up. Of course, it was it was yeah. a scandal yes. or it was a joke, right? And um, and I kind of you know I'm I'm one of the last people my age that's kind of feels a little bit of national pride, um, and not because of you know uh, not because of uh, in a pragmatic spirit of national pride, yes. not because there's some ideal America no, yeah, out there yeah. or but that there's you know you know, there's cool things in this land I'm connected to. That's right. One That's of right. the great things is these folks that were very American and, um, uh, you know, they, they nonetheless created a philosophy that really emerges out of the culture of the place. You know, yep. it is the, it is the philosophy of the, um, of the of the random town that has to figure out how to build a well. Indeed, it's the philosophy of the town meeting in Connecticut that has to figure out how they yep. want to organize the town or raise money to yep. solve a public problem. Yep. It um, and so um, you know, and it is the great response of you know, you guys might have your perfect organized analytical thought or your perfect organized continental thought, where either you have your equations or you have your manifestos, but we hear. Um, you know, we only write our philosophy in retrospect. We do projects and then maybe patterns emerge <laughs> mm -hmm. and we say, this is an interesting pattern. All of our, all of our philosophies are best practice, um, best right. practice tips and tricks, That's which right. you That's can right. laugh at, but look at us, look what we've invented. Indeed. You know? That's good. That's good. I have to admit, I've not read a sentence by Charles Sanders Peirce. I've read a little bit of Dewey and I've read a little more James. And I am surprised to discover that James is actually quite readable. He's quite a oh, bit yes, more he was, approachable, you know. He, he he gave speeches at the time. He was yeah. a real like public intellectual. He yep. was he it, it, which is ironic. You know, John Dewey should be a more uh 
readable writer because he was the hmm. one who explicitly talked about like I believe in democratic education where everyone could learn but his writing is not the most accessible whereas I William see, yeah. James I feel lives up to the spirit by being um uh you know being very readable and very clear thinking and writing. Yep. Well, the essay that I was aware of, uh, maybe from a few years ago, is The Moral Equivalent of War, which is really uh, an extraordinary piece. It's, it's his attempt during a very mil militaristic time in American history, right, with the Philippines, Spanish-American War and all that, to try to say, we need a kind of sense of valor, but l let's don't be imperialistic. Let, let's, let's have civic zeal, civic ardor, you know? And um, and I think I think that idea is still in circulation to some degree when people talk about the Peace Corps, the Poverty Corps, you know, ways of channeling civic energy. Um, where I where I discovered this essay was in uh, the work of this remarkable writer whom I often uh, plump, Rebecca Solnit, and her book Paradise Built in Hell. I, I don't know if you know this, but she she recounts that um, James was trying to retire and Stanford University in the spring of 1906 made him an offer that was so huge. He picked up and moved to the new campus of Stanford University, 30 miles south of San Francisco, a few weeks before the earthquake. Wow. Oh my gosh. The he's in a day earthquake. Absolutely. Absolutely. He's there lecturing on campus. He's got an early draft of the moral equivalent of war. And then the earthquake hits and he's, you know, talking to wow. friends and trying to figure out what's going on. And did yes. it affect, did it affect the draft? It did. It did. Wow. What happened was oh, that's the, the, the essay was in the earlier stage of it. It was still relatively theoretical. He, he really had no particular experience of people and their, and their energy being channeled toward, you know, a, a kind of real effort of valor. And so he went to San Francisco um, with, I think, a relative or a friend of a relative, and he spent a day or two wandering around. And he was very astonished to discover that even though the newspapers were, were full of horrific stories, people on the ground were perfectly calm, perfectly reasonable, energized, even enthusiastic about helping each other because they were not suffering from catastrophes of loneliness as individuals. It was a general catastrophe. And he watched as this brought out, as exactly uh, Solnit wants to underline, it, it brought out this extraordinary kind of, not just volunteerism, but sort of vision in people to kind of collaborate, to work together, to make things ha happen, to be adept, to be fast at it, to make decisions. And he found the whole thing just extraordinary, particularly the fact that no one was standing around moping. Everybody, what, whatever their situation, how, how, however awful the circumstance was, they were completely energized and mobilized. There are there are so many wonderful things to say about this that are That's so right. William James. Yeah, so <laughs> right. One thing is we have to know the generation that this is arising out of, which is the yes. Civil War generation. Exactly right. So they you know and he opens the the essay with no one would vote to have the civil war but no one would want the civil war to have never happened yeah what a um, because amazing thing to say of the mm -hmm. romance yes. of um 
of it in the north um, yep. um because of the and this is kind of he's speaking as like a white guy in the north you know that's right civil war has a lot of different meanings to different people yes. um, yes. um but <laughs> in his world it was the romance of it the feeling of collective you know spirit the national spirit that came out of it you know a lot of the populist and progressive movements i think was because there was a national spirit of like we are doing things together uh, um, yes and yes, uh -huh. um and so that's <clears throat> one thing where he wanted that but then at the time all of that national martial spirit it was like teddy roosevelt you know there's really good stuff about teddy roosevelt his domestic yes. stuff yes like the foreign stuff is like the mm -hmm. founding, mm -hmm. you know, horror of American imperialism at yep. this time, like you alluded to. Yep. And he, um, and that that's where people were channeling this, um, this really genuine emotion of we should do big things. We should be adults. We should be mature. We should be bloodied up by our life. Yeah. The man in the arena, one of the most beautiful yeah, concepts yeah. out there. But Okay, now this is the funny thing. This is the connection to pragmatism. What a prag... Nothing in the essay itself is that connected explicitly to pragmatism, but the act of the essay itself is a very pragmatic act. What is the hmm. most pragmatic American-spirited thing to do when you're concerned about like a cultural thing? Propose some idea. <laughs> propose some intervention concretely. Right. And he right. literally proposes. He, he sits around and he goes, oh, what project should we do? We should invent this new concept called the moral equivalent of war. And he literally like says we should do this it's not just a critique yeah. Yeah. of the imperialism it is an alternative um and that's um that's a beautiful thing about william james final thing on yeah. this um, yeah. i love when you said walking around and just observing one thing to know about william james and why pragmatism is so relevant to our time is he was the multicultural cosmopolitan before there were multicultural cosmopolitans widespread mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he had traveled around and lived in dozens of places as a kid and had seen dozens of religions and dozens of subcultures yes. and dozens yes. of places. Right. And so he actually kind of had the experience that we're all having with the internet right now, which is just being bombarded with alternate ways of living. And he basically, all philosophy is biography, invented this philosophy <laughs> to account for how the fact that there was so much culture and so many alternative ways of being that we can't you know, force everyone into one idealized way of being. Um, he had to have one that could account for all these differences. And so the act of like walking around and observing is what he did all of his life. Um, getting hmm. things from the soil, not just from the stars. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah that's sorry good. for the that's long good. William James enthusiastic rant. That's great. No, it makes me want to read more. It makes me want to read more. Yes. I, I want to go to Dewey for a moment. And, you know, you and I also have an interest in the subject because we are uh, mourning the loss of John Dewey's great grandson, our, our great friend, Fred Dewey. But, you know, John yes. Dewey, does he, does he need to come back into currency um, I, I don't know very much about his ideas. What do you What do you think about his reputation and where he is today? He yeah, was. He, I think he. Yeah, I think he needs to be in the American. You know, the hmm. right. The right actually. Oh, they um, demonized him. They demonized. They Endlessly. they respect him. They respect him more than the yeah, left. Yeah, true. Does, you right. know, because they actually see his legacy. Yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is he's one of the great fighters of hierarchy and authoritarianism and um, and uh, belittlement of people. He is uh, he's a great democratic, radical democratic empowerment person. And so let me say two legacies, I'd say mm -hmm. his major practical legacy is the the way we do school today you know um, yeah. um a, a huge adjustment to school basically like all of school was memorize the mcguffey reader <laughs> you know and sit in rows 
uh, you know, honoring the dictatorial teacher at the front of it, which many of you might be hearing this and be like, it's still a lot like that. So yeah. John Dewey is is still the insurgent alternative, not like the dominant thing yet. But he's made a lot of headway in 100 years. Mm-hmm. He prop- He basically popularized in some ways like invented, you know, did a lot of the original work on this, um, along with um, who's, uh, you know, other great ones are like Paolo Freire, but there's yeah. also, um, who was the great, um, oh, I'm, I'm forgetting it. it, the guy who invented constructivism, I'll look it up before the end of the, the podcast, hmm. a Frenchman. Um, oh, Piaget? Piaget, yeah, Jean, yes. yeah, Jean yeah. Piaget. Yes, yeah. they're kind of in this. He invents progressive mm-hmm. education, which another way to put progressive education is democratic education, which is the kid doesn't just get beat over the head with the knowledge and control you have. Right. The kid needs to be an active participant in mm-hmm. knowledge creation, mm-hmm. have project-based learning, have circular tables, have, um, you know, have ask kids what they think, have them have debates. So if you or your kid was in a classroom where you sat in a circle, where you had debates, where you did projects, where the teacher, instead of making you memorize chemistry, had you do the experiment and mm-hmm. then ask you questions and discover it yourself, which, you know, I, I'll go as far as to say I'm a radical on this front. This is the way people actually learn. And if right. you learned anything in the other way, it was by happenstance, right. not because of how it happens, um, because this is where Piaget comes in to connect it to the actual brain science and development science. This is how we actually build knowledge. Cool. Um, that's John Dewey's legacy. Okay, his academic legacy. Oh, well, I'll stop there and we can get into his idea, I, I, okay. you know, his uh, intellectual legacy, but any thoughts on that progressive education? And Yeah, you know. this is going to be a major effort because he's part of, or he was part of the culture war. Is that particular war going on still? I don't know. It seems like in a way it's been partly won. Project-based education seems like it's pretty well embraced and, and a kind of sense of a more practice-oriented education seems to be also pretty well embraced. So, so yeah, maybe like, he's one, you know. Yeah, like the conservatives, level. when they say shop class is soul craft, yeah. you know, yes. the great Matthew Crawford. Yes. The irony of that is like, that's now conservative learning exactly. um, to, to like go to shop class and like learn from an apprentice, but, or at Boy Scouts or something. But yeah. Um, yeah. that's that's total Dewey. Like if all of school yeah. became that, it would be Dewey's grade. <laughs> like it would be a Dewey <laughs> victory. True. Um, True. The other irony is, you know, the Boy Scouts, a progressive legacy coming out of this mm. ferment of a different way of being. You know, what mm. was radical once is um, ah. is now, you know, traditional. That's right. The other big thing is, um, you know, this idea that democracy, this this which I think was totally lost mid-century. It's the idea that democracy is everywhere. All of society is democracy. All of society is education. Democracy is not voting. Civic education is not learning about voting and taxes and how a bill becomes a law. Mm -hmm. Democracy is when you have a meeting on the street and talk about something different. Democracy is when you have a civic group. Democracy is at your family table when a kid is asked, you know, what their opinion is. Democracy is when you have mutual respect and conversation um, and like talk about how things could be better. Democracy is at work, you know, it is the idea that to have a democratic society, a democratic government is to have a democratic society. Um, and I would say the intellectual history of that is that exploded in the progressive era. And you think things all move in one direction, but 
you know, you have retrenchment by mid century. Mm -hmm. You have um, Schumpeter writing that like we're all consumer automatons and our only democracy is just choosing Coke fee Pepsi of the two parties. Yeah. And you have like all the major public intellectuals saying, don't trust any of the masses, you know, don't trust ordinary people. It's all about the elites. And then you have the right wing you know, come and say it's all individualism. There is no society. And we've basically been fighting between like elite technocrats versus there is no society when really Dewey is there is society and that society is not a faceless mask. It mass. It is like the people in a pluralistic burbling conversation about what, you know, co-creating our shared world. Yep. Yep. Very good. Very good. Now, you, you imbibe this at the feet of two remarkable people, and I want you to tell us a little bit about them, because I know you've, you've really collaborated with them. Cornel West and Roberto Mangabera Unger, two very remarkable, very different, um, and closely allied uh, public intellectuals. Give us a little bit about your experience with these two people as people, just out of curiosity. Yeah, you know, so I'll start with the connection to them. So yeah. I believe, I'll just say it, I think they are the two, they are the legacy of the pragmatists yeah. and, the, and the radical Democrats, small d, you know, in intellectual life. Um, uh, Cornel West in the late 80s wrote a genealogy of pragmatism mm -hmm. um, called like the American evasion of philosophy, which is a great title mm -hmm. because pragmatism is the anti-philosophy, you know, uh, um, yes. and in that book, he cites Unger as the like latest iteration of pragma pragmatism. And, and, and criticizes him a little bit. Yes. Yeah. No, that's an a interesting thing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Um, so, um, so yeah. So, uh, I don't know. Where do I start? What, what should I, who <laughs> well, are they? What, you know, what was it like, like? Just tell us what it was like to work with Cornell and what it was like when you yeah, met So Hunter, I was right? their teaching assistant for this great class that should be like a legendary class, but it hasn't hmm. really broken. Through. Well, this is, this is all in the same class, not two classes, one class. Yeah. So I've been a teaching assistant for Unger, uh, for a long time. And then through that, Okay. Was in their class that they teach. They taught together. Uh, West just left Harvard, but yeah, um, they taught together called American Democracy. What a great wow. class name! Just like the American Democracy class, and um, and it was both like in the reality of American Democracy and also theories, visions of where hmm. democracy could go, um, and in the spirit of their radical democratic belief, all of the classes are online. You can watch any single class of the last five years of wow. them online. Um, so um, that's an exciting thing. Um, yeah, no, they're, what's amazing is they both, um, you know, Cornell West, I believe, you know, he's, his, he lives in his personal, like interpersonal style, like his philosophy. He, mm -hmm. he is the heir to the tradition of the rivers of basically pragmatism, radical democracy, and Christian, like black Christianity mm -hmm. coming together basically mm -hmm. in one man. Um, and I think people don't appreciate this. They think, you know, this happens all the time. I have this other person I talk about a lot, Ralph Nader, where you sure. the caricatures in life that they're just kind of left-wing can't, you mm -hmm. know, you think they're just parroting the normal thing. Mm -hmm. The actual people are these incredibly, you know, rich, um, are, are, you know, really know their canon, their incredibly rich legacy, and they live up to it and know all the ins and outs of it. And it's much more um, th so so, you know, in how he lives it, he's very open. You know, he isn't threatened by ideas. Mm -hmm. um, he's 
you know, in his spirit of, you know, spirit of democracy, he's always looking towards the margins for things. He says he's a, yes. um, he says he's a, you know, a preacher of the blues and he mm -hmm. loves John Coltrane, talks about John Coltrane as if it's almost a religious, you know, figure, yes. um, yes. and interweaves this, um, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and, jazz actually is like a great pragmatic symbol hmm. and democratic experimentalist symbol it's uh, of course improvisation you of know course. it has some structure it has some canon you know it's not just french sartre and nothingness of just resist all structure but within the within the structure it's constant you know improvisation unger actually has this line what our visions must be are not blueprints but jazz you wow. know it's um let's you know we have a sense of what the song should be in but you know, with reality um and uh so he lives by that he um he also, you know, he really practices interpersonal Christianity um, in like day-to-day -day life with him. I, I had this moment where I walked around campus with him to like deliver some papers somewhere that I had to help him deliver. And um, people would shout out the windows and he'd say, hello, brother. Hello, sister. He would stop. <laughs> he would, um, he would, uh, you know, interact with people in and take time to learn their names. He'd remember their names. He'd, um, and then he'd, you know, when there was tension, like, you know, someone does something good and someone also does something bad. Even when he talked about Trump, talked about, you know, Obama, who he has many issues with, he would say, hmm. he would say, brother Trump, you know, he would, hmm. and he would say this as well. But I sit and here is my problems with them that they need to work on. But then it wouldn't be milk toast openness. It would also be very strong critique, yeah. which is amazing. And yeah. so that's him. Um, and then you know Unger, it's it's. Let, let's, this, just, let's explain a little bit about who Unger is, because not very yeah. many, many people know about his extraordinary background. Yeah, he is. Um, he's this great Brazilian American philosopher. He grows up in Brazil and America, kind of. Um, his he's from like an elite Brazilian family. Mm -hmm. um, he starts reading Aristotle, and his mom starts reading him like Aristotle and Plato at a, at like age six, and gives him this unlimited book budget, and he starts like reading, and he reads the wow. entirety of the like philosophical social theory canon. Um, he become he gets invited at like 23 this is just like the folktale of Unger first mm -hmm. he's invited at 23 to be on the faculty at Harvard yes. Law School and yes <laughs> and and his legacy precedes him it's like the Brazilian is coming the Brazil I've asked other people wow. at the time they were like this Brazilian genius is coming um he arrives and he um basically is the intellectual powerhouse of the critical legal theory movement yeah. which totally upends the law yeah. and um um, basically a revival of legal real to hilt, um, saying it's politics all the way down. Now, um, <laughs> in some, you could read a thousand uh -huh. pages of complicated uh -huh. writing on it, but it's, uh -huh. it's basically the law is politics. Um, and, uh, you know, with some details, um, and, uh, you know, even though they have all these fights and culture wars over critical legal theory and others, basically, you know, critical legal studies is this idea that, you know, the law is politics and there isn't a sharp dividing line between the two. Um, you know, people have interests and ideals and um, and uh, are part of political coalitions and they bring that into their judging and lawyering. Um, and um, and even though it caused a whole culture war kerfuffle and people were purged and all these things, um, it 
you know, has a legacy and I think burrowed into the deep beliefs of the legal academy. Yep. But he wasn't really didn't want his his legacy, you know, Unger has bigger aims than just like being a legal scholar, you know. Yeah. Um he writes a magnum opus called Politics, which is an entire social theory basically mm -hmm. of it being politics all the way down of mm -hmm. basically there is nothing in society society is made and imagined and um by humans now and um and what we see as structure is really just frozen fighting i'm using his words oh yeah the famous um, phrase Wonderful. yeah it is just frozen fighting waiting mm -hmm. to be fought about again <laughs> and what we call natural and necessary is not neither natural nor necessary in society yep. um and he he actually has the very bulky if you had to call his category of thought he would call it anti-necessitarian thought mm. <laughs> which is like not not the best branding in the world and, and you know um, one striking thing for me is the fact that he went into government he was part of lulod's Lula's administration in Brazil at this wonderful moment of kind of revival, you know, long after or just after the uh, military uh, uh, dictatorship was was taken down. And he had this this period where I take it he was able to be influential and effective in social programs and Lula's great successes. And then it all came unwound. Right. In when, the last few years. In the last few years. The, yeah. Yeah. So this is a great yeah. tragedy. So so exactly. Unger's yeah. been involved since the 70s. And yeah. to be involved in politics in the 70s in Brazil is very brave. Um, it was Indeed. a dictatorship. People were being tortured. Dilma, yeah. you know, we don't appreciate this. Dilma was, you know, tortured. That's right. You know, this is part of her um, why people you know why she was high up in the party. You know, Dilma she had Rousseff the respect of yeah. surviving, yeah. you know, yeah. and so Unger was very involved. He has kind of he's close to Ciro Gomez, who got hmm. third place and probably would have beaten Bolsonaro. Hmm. Um, he um, in the last election, um, mm -hmm. he was close. You know, he was in Lula's administration and he in a very Hungarian spirit was in but not of. And so he was not a good he was not a good uh, quiet party man. He would write op eds against the, his own administration. Huh. You know, it would be huh. as if a cabinet secretary was like, I think yeah, Biden yeah. is doing something wrong. And um and he was just he refuses to um to not speak the truth, but he also refuses to just sit happy, you know, in the monastery of academia. He fights in Brazil and he basically comes to America to do his thinking and then goes to Brazil to do his action. Yep. And he says, um, he actually advises, I love this. He has he says to young people, you must, you must think and you must act, and you know, you must have times in the battlefield and times in the monastery. <laughs> and, um, and uh and just my favorite last thing on him, um, from you know, he is so ambitious, like he does not want to be this public intellectual who gives a TED talk and writes the best selling book on, you know, why can teach us about this, that or the other, whatever, you know, or yeah. like yeah. Uh, nothing against that. But like he's he's not aiming to leader. He is aiming to continue the larger conversation that Marx and Weber and wow you know <laughs> and uh uh and heidegger and all having you know and yeah. um and, fantastic and he wants to he doesn't rest, he doesn't allow his books to not be publicly online you know he is he wants to he's thinking in broader strokes and he wrote a book of physics 
unbelievable with famous physics to um, describe a fix that could be amenable to um, to his theories of democracy and the human person called the singular universe of the reality of time. Wow. Amazing, amazing. Um, taking organist multiverse theory and saying time is real. <laughs> wow, wow. A Renaissance character. And no the doubt. universe is singular. How extraordinary. You know, I see my internet connection is still a little unstable. Maybe, maybe we'll wrap it up there after that whirlwind tour. That was great, Pete. Thank you very much. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Unger's stuff is downloadable, as you say. So you can pull down a PDF and get started on this guy who is really one of the most remarkable modern intellectuals uh, we could talk about. So we, I'm going to jump us off here in order to make sure my Wi-Fi doesn't go down and we have a reasonable ending. But thank you, Pete. We'll come back again soon. Peace. Thank you, Elias. Thank you all. all. Be well. Talk care. Bye. Bye.